Time for seafood news. Hello, you're listening to the Seafood News Podcast. I'm Seafood News Managing Editor Amanda Buckle. And I'm Ernerberry Market Reporter Lauren Castiglione. This week's episode is brought to you by Ernerberry's Comtel. Ernerberry continues to build upon the value Comtel offers customers with new features and improvements consistently being added to the platform. We are excited to announce three new widgets for the Comtel dashboard designed to increase efficiency and expand on the amount of information available right from the homepage. The addition of these new features will enable Comtel subscribers to capitalize on market intelligence without having to leave the dashboard. This package of new features includes just a few of the many enhancements that Ernerberry is planning to release moving forward. Always big new things from Ernerberry. Mm-hmm. So we've got a great episode. This week we're talking about Maruja Nichiro selling a major portion of the assets of Peter Pan Seafoods and diversified postponing Seafood Expo North America and Seafood Expo Global. Plus, we've got the latest news regarding Bumblebee CEO Chris Lachewski, and we've got an interview with Andrea Hans, the executive director of the Texas Shrimp Association. Yes, yeah, so a few weeks ago, Andrea submitted an opinion piece to Seafood News about how visa restrictions are threatening the survival of the U.S. shrimp industry. This week, Andrea joined us on the podcast to talk more in depth about the serious labor issue that the Texas shrimp industry is facing. Let's take a listen. Hey, Andrea, thanks for joining the Seafood News podcast. Oh, great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. No problem. So, uh, you know, you recently wrote an opinion piece uh, for Seafood News about uh, the temporary ban on H2B visas and how it's affecting the U.S. shrimp industry. Do you want to explain a little bit more about that? Oh, sure. Um, So right now, um, actually since 2016, um, the H2B visa um, returning worker exemption language expire. So ever since 2016, we've been working diligently to try and come up with some form of um, either legislative change, which is, is complicated and difficult, and or some way to combat or solve this issue. So, um, yeah, so going back to 2016, um, when the language expired, and, and, and let me just reiterate that the returning worker exemption is typically what most of the shrimpers and processors um, hire their, their seasonal visa workers under. Um, and the returning worker exemptions did not or do not count towards the cap of 66,000. Um, so it worked well for us. We've been relying on seasonal uh, workers, um, experienced seasonal workers, let me add that, um, for probably the last 20, 25 years. So when this, it, it kind of snuck up on us and um, we, we've been dealing with it ever since. And again, it, it's really been costing our industry a lot of money. And uh, we've, we've, again, we've been trying to go down every every alternative avenue we can think of. And, and unfortunately, I don't think we're any closer today than we were five years ago of solving this problem for our industry. Wow. And yeah, so the uh, the Texas Shrimp Association uh, released some interesting statistics, and uh, you know we can definitely include this this graphic um, along with the podcast notes. But 64% of U.S. seasonal workers uh, hired will quit within the first week, and 98% will quit before the end of their first trip. I mean, why why do so many U.S. seasonal workers quit? Like, why why can't they make the cut? And and again, that's been kind of the learning curve for everybody. So. 
you know, obviously this is not a popular program. And I completely understand why, you know, U.S. consumers, I completely get why they, they are questioning the need for bringing foreign workers into this country. But the realities are um, our, our industry, a lot of people, when they think of, of, of shrimping, they think of a cute little boat that's floating along um, in the waters, you know, everybody's eating at the local restaurant on the, on the waters. They can look out and see a shrimp boat. That's not the realities of our industry. Um, these commercial Gulf shrimping vessels, and, and by the way, there's, there's bay shrimpers who go out for a day and come back in. Um, they're the ones that you see, you know, um, in the shallow waters, but obviously they're not the ones feeding the nation. Um, it's the big 100-foot commercial fishing vessels that are out to sea for 30 or 45 days. And we don't just stay in our particular zone or area. We fish the entire um, Gulf of Mexico. Also, we don't go into Mexico, but we fish the Gulf of Mexico, hugging the coastline of, of all the, the, the Gulf Coast states. So um, you, you've got to imagine a boat that, you know, took off from, let's just say, Brownsville, which is where I'm located, the very southern tip of Texas, um, you know, took off and, and you know, their, their radio and their buddies on, on you know, the, the radio said, hey, where are the shrimp located? You know, and they're like, hey, they're all, right now they're hugging the Louisiana and Mississippi border, you know. So this boat takes off and, and heads that direction. Um, and so we, you know, it, the, the Gulf of Mexico is a rough body of water. Um, and it scares, as a boat owner myself, it scares me to no end to get that phone call at 10 o'clock at night or midnight, you know, saying there's been an accident on the boat because, you know, the swells are 14 to 15 feet and somebody fell over. And, and therefore, that's why our industry is actually considered uh, the second most dangerous industry in the United States, right behind logging. So, um, number one, it, it's an, again, it's an extremely, um, um, it, 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 it's a complicated, um, it's complicated to put somebody on the boat. They really need to, number one, they have to go through rigorous safety trainings, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, before they get on that boat. And you really want somebody um, who's been out on a boat previously and understands how to work a winch, how to work the cable. I mean, I don't know if you've ever you know, been up close and, and looked at a 100-foot fishing vessel, but I'm still in awe when I stand at the dock and look at a, a fishing vessel that has all of the chains and nets and um, you name it. And I'm like, oh, my God, how, how does this thing work out in the Gulf of Mexico when they're trying to, to fish um, in the middle of the night, you know, with 14, 15-foot swells? You're like, I, I can't believe there's not more accidents than there are. Yeah. Um, so long story short, um, it's extremely difficult to get somebody to, to, number one, leave their family for a month or six weeks at a time. Number two, you know, they're going offshore. So you, you have to be, you have to be, you, you pretty much have to have salt water in your veins. <laughs> You're not just going to pull somebody off the street and go, hey, you know, let's put you on our fishing vessel, which, by the way, most of these fishing vessels can't afford insurance. Um, insurance on these things cost, you know, anywhere from fifteen to 20000 a year. Um, so, you know, here's when I tell somebody who's who's very argumentative with me or completely against this program, I tell them, look, find me somebody that has, you know, at least three to six months worth of experience 
on an offshore fishing vessel who's able to go offshore, adhere to all the safety regulations, which, by the way, I believe were the seventh, uh, the seventh and ninth most regulated industry in the United States with over 13,000 regulations. Let's find somebody that knows how to do that and is able to work um, at the pace that we want them to work um, and not want to come back to shore and get off the boat and say, thank you. Uh, it, it's just, unfortunately, it's not an industry that, that you can easily train somebody to do that. Thank you, Andrea, for joining us on the podcast. Now on to our news. Peter Pan Seafood's CEO, Barry Collier, announced that over the weekend, longtime owner Maruha Nichiro is selling a major portion of the assets of Peter Pan to an American holding company made up of Northwest Fish Company and McKinley Capital. The sale is expected to be completed by the end of the year. This means that after 40 years of being owned by Tokyo-based Maruha Nichiro, Peter Pan will once again be owned by U.S. companies who have deep roots in Alaska's seafood industry. So Northwest Fish Company, under the leadership of Roger May, is a processor distributor based in SeaTac, Washington, with annual revenues of $40 million. Uh, McKinley Capital, a privately held company founded by Bob Gillum and now led by his son Rob, manages a $5 billion global investment portfolio. It is Alaska's largest provider of economic and policy research since the acquisition of the McDowell Group last January. Peter Pan's new owners say that their intention is to operate in a manner that will minimize disruption to the business operations and communities they support, with plans to expand the business. Assets involved in the sale include the plants and real estate at King Cove, Dillingham, Port Mahler, and Valdez, along with facilities at Naknek and Sandpoint in Alaska, and in Washington at their Seattle warehouse near Fisherman's Terminal. Peter Pan's CEO said that all trademarks, brands, and labels will go along with the sale, ensuring the uninterrupted continuation of the Peter Pan brand in the marketplace. In other news, Diversified Communications announced on Monday that they're postponing the current 2021 date for Seafood Expo North America and Seafood Expo Global. The decision to postpone the shows are related to the ongoing public health and safety issues caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Liz Plisga, the vice president of Diversified Group, said in a statement that the company had been monitoring the world health situation, as well as government regulations and travel restrictions. After carefully considering the concerns that were addressed to them by customers and attendees, it became evident that they were necessary to reschedule the events. So Seafood Expo North America, also known as the Boston Seafood Show, was originally scheduled to take place from March 14th to the 16th in 2021. However, it will now be pushed from March to July, which honestly, I'm not... I don't know if that's long enough. I don't know if it's long enough, but I'm not opposed to it because... I'm always freezing in March. I know. It would be nice to go away and not have to carry the coat around. Yes. And, yeah. Because everyone knows the booth spaces are, you know, you're, you're packing a lot, you know, of, of right. stuff There's in no there. Right. There's no room for anything else. Yeah. We're always carrying heavy winter jackets. So I'm pro. I'm pro the July move. Yes. You know? Hopefully we'll be in a totally different space in July. You never know what's going to happen. Because it would be nice. Yes. Um, but Diverse Side, they're working closely with uh, the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center to find new dates for the event in mid-July. Uh, so I, I looked up the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center's calendar for July 2021 because there's no exact date set. Right. And the venue is currently booked for a Building Owners and Managers Association International Annual Conference and Expo. That's from July 19th to the 20th. And then there's a Heart Rhythm Society annual scientific session from July 29th to the 31st. So there's plenty of space in there for us to... So it'll be at least the, the first half of July. Yeah. I think it's doable. You know, right. supposedly, right, there's a uh, a vaccine coming. Allegedly. Allegedly. 
According to Plisga, Diversified is aiming to maintain the traditional three-day format. New dates for Seafood Expo North America will be communicated as soon as they are confirmed. Meanwhile, Seafood Expo Global, which was set to kick off its first year at the Gran Via in Barcelona, Spain, from April 27th to the 29th in 2021, will now take place from September 7th through the 9th. The event will still be held at the Gran Via venue. Diversified said in a statement that the new dates were chosen based on the availability of the venue to host such a large-scale event. I mean, a year from now. Things got to be different, right? They have to be, please. I'm, I'm down for a Barcelona <laughs> trip. I'm down for that. Here we go. Let's, buy, let's let's just go ahead and book our tickets. We're in for that. Yeah. We can, we can I've do got it. the company card. All right. <laughs> um, I feel like we need something to look forward to. We do. And, and Diversified we need to go always, international. Yes. Diversified always puts on a good show. So whenever it does take place, you know it's going to be good. It's going to be nice seeing familiar faces. Whenever we're there, you know it's going to be good. A good time. Yeah, we're a good time. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson announced that former CEO of Bumblebee Foods, Christopher Lischewski, will pay $100,000 to the state for his role in a canned tuna price-fixing scheme. In June, the state filed a lawsuit against top tuna canner Starkiss and the former CEO of Bumblebee Foods um, over a price-fixing conspiracy, which he said took $6 million out of the pockets of Washington residents. Ferguson's charges filed in King County Superior Court assert Starkist Company, its parent company, Dongwan, and Lachewski engaged in a price-fixing conspiracy from 2004 through 2015 to drive up the cost of packaged tuna, violating Washington's Consumer Protection Act. As a result, Washington residents paid millions more than they should have. The Attorney General noted that the price-fixing led to consumers in the state to pay inflated prices for tuna from three of the top providers, Bumblebee, Starkist, and Chicken of the Sea. Ferguson's office said that Washington was the first state to sue the companies and the first to reach an agreement with a former CEO. An investigation will continue to assess the precise impact the case left on Washington consumers. Uh, Lushchewski's attorney, David Angeli, released a statement following the consent decree announced by the Washington State Attorney General's office. And according to Angeli, as the settlement documents make clear, Mr. Lushchewski maintains that he never engaged in any misconduct and is glad to have been able to put this matter behind him quickly. As he comes to an agreement with the state of Washington, he's aiming for a retrial and his criminal conviction for his role in the price-fixing scheme. Lachewski is now arguing that he did not receive a fair trial for the charges brought against him, stemming from the Cantuna price-fixing conspiracy. He is appealing his conviction, which includes a 40-month prison sentence and $100,000 fine. He's arguing that multiple instructional and evidentiary errors committed by the Department of Defense requires a new trial. And that does it for us. Thanks for listening, and see you back here next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>